You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. Hi, well, good morning. I'm going to invite you to return to your pews. Thanks for greeting one another this morning. Uh, my name is Jeremy Edelman. I'm the senior pastor here at River City Church, and I want to welcome you here. Uh, whether you are a longtime member or a first-time guest, whether you're here in the sanctuary or on our live stream, uh, we're glad that you're here. Welcome. As a church, we exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond. And that weariness, it can come from a lot of different places this morning. For you, maybe this morning, it's coming from busyness. Maybe you're feeling the brokenness of the world, or you're feeling the weight of the idols and the, cl- and the sin that we cling to in life. And in response to our weariness, Jesus invites us to come to Him and find rest for our souls. That invitation is found in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. And I love the way that Eugene Peterson paraphrased these words from Jesus. I want to read them to you this morning. He, he wrote it this way, Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. That is our invitation together this morning. Are you tired? Worn out? When I was reading it the first time, I feel like I heard someone say, yes. Burned out on religion. Then together, let's come to Jesus and recover our lives, and learn together the unforced rhythms of grace. And so, in light of that, in view of that, let me offer you this welcome in the name of Jesus this morning. To all of you who are here this morning and feel weary and are in need of rest, to all of you who mourn and are in need of comfort, to all who feel worthless and you're wondering if God cares, to all who fail and need strength, to all who sin and need a Savior, to all who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and to whoever else will come, this church opens wide her doors and offers welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome. We're glad that you're here with us this morning. And if you would now open your Bibles to Acts chapter 18, that's what we'll be together, be together today. Acts 18 verses 1 through 22. If you're using one of those pew Bibles, feel free to do that. It's on page 927. And in our passage today, Paul is entering the city of Corinth. Last week, we read about his time in Athens, and as you can see on the map here on the screen, he's already traveled a great distance in this second missionary journey. He began in Antioch, way over in the east side of the map, and he traveled all the way west to, or through Galatia and then into Macedonia, through cities like Philippi and Thessalonica. Now he's down here in the southern part of 
Greece, Athens last week, and today we'll see him in Corinth. Paul enters Corinth tired and mostly alone. We're going to see a remarkable level of fortitude in Paul as he remains faithful to his work. And we're also going to see God's provision for Paul in the work. And so before we jump into the Word, let me pray for us and ask for God's help. So Father, we do, as as we open our Bibles, God, we ask for your help. We ask that your Spirit would help us to see things that we would otherwise not see. Would you help us? to understand things that we lack the wisdom to understand. And we pray, God, that as we open your word, would you open our eyes that we may behold the wondrous things that we find there. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I learned about this meme recently of an older man, probably in his 80s, with this big smile on his face. And the caption on the image read, Who said ministry was stressful? I'm 35 and I feel great. Well, over the course of the last few years, I feel like I've seen this meme make the rounds more often than once, and probably true for other professions than ministry as well. And it points to the reality that life can be hard sometimes, maybe often times. It can be draining. And in the midst of the fatigue, we find ourselves asking, How do we remain faithful in our calling as a Christian? How do we walk in faithfulness? At this point, Paul is about 50 years old, and throughout this second missionary journey, he's going to be away from home for about three years. He traveled between 1,500 and 2,000 miles by foot. And if you add on the miles that he travels by boat, the journey is going to take over 3,000 miles in total. Uh, For the sake of reference, that would be like walking from Minneapolis to Los Angeles and then getting on a boat and sailing all the way up to Seattle. Or if you grew up playing Oregon Trail, my kids and I, we found a newer version of Oregon Trail. We've been playing it recently. From Independence to Oregon City is 1,800 miles. So Paul's already basically traveled the Oregon Trail. Fortunately, he didn't have to ford any rivers, and no one got cholera that we know of, right? But Paul, he's been on a grueling journey. In our passage, he arrives here in Corinth, most likely low on funds and tired from all the work that's already gone before him. He's entering this large and important city, estimated to be about 750,000 people, Timothy Keller gives us a helpful contemporary reference point when he says that Athens was like modern-day Boston, an intellectual center, and Corinth would be like modern-day New York City, a commercial center. And so imagine Paul entering this overwhelming metropolis, low on funds, doesn't know anyone in the city, and tired from what's already been a long journey. And what will we see here in Corinth? It will turn out to be one of his most fruitful seasons of ministry in his entire journey. And isn't that the way that God works so often? When we are pushed to the end of ourselves, God provides for the work and brings about the fruit. And so here's what we're going to see together throughout the sermon. We are called to be faithful in the work as we trust God's provision for the work. We are called to be faithful in the work as God's, or as we trust God's provision for the work. Each of us here today, faithfulness in the work and God's provision for the work, it will look different. It's not all going to look the exact same. 
Faithful, faithfulness for you is probably not going to mean walking another 500 miles by foot, entering another synagogue in another city to engage an audience who are mostly stubborn to the message. Faithfulness to you might mean that you're a father who comes home at the end of a hard and long workday. You're tired, and you need to be faithful in the way that you care for the souls of your wife and your children. It means that rather than sit on the couch, you help to make dinner, you lead your family in family worship, you read your children a book, and then you put them to bed. All of that with a desire and a a pursuit of joy and love toward those whom you are called to shepherd in your home. Or faithfulness for you might mean that you befriend someone at the gym this week. Taking the initiative to overcome the awkwardness and move toward that person in relationship. Spending the energy to ask thoughtful questions and genuinely try to understand their hopes and their dreams and then taking the risk to help them see that true peace and purpose are only found when we've trusted in Jesus as Lord. Whatever faithfulness looks like for you this week, whether it is enduring physical pain, loving a difficult neighbor, or committing to pray for our church family, like Paul, we are called to faithfulness in the work, always trusting God's provision for the work. As we work through our passage today, we're going to see the dynamic between those two realities, God's provision, Paul's faithfulness. I want to help us to see that within the narrative and then lead us to ask ourselves, how, how does, what does it look like for us today as well? And so let's begin. Acts chapter 18, verses, or starting in verse 1, again, page 927 there in the Pew Bibles. It says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. The first way that we're going to see Paul remain faithful is in his vocation and his relationships. One of the characteristics of Paul that we see throughout the scriptures is that he is deeply committed to relational investment. Paul is not a go-it-alone sort of person. He surrounds himself with other men and women who love Jesus, and then he labors alongside of them in life and ministry. Paul would not be an advocate for the American idea of rugged individualism. Now, that's not to say that he does not have a significant work ethic, but he does not view his success in life and ministry as something that he accomplishes on his own. He knows that he's dependent upon others and upon God's provision. For example, when he writes 1 Corinthians as a letter to this church in Corinth that's about to be established, we're going to read about in a moment, in the greeting, he mentions Sosthenes, who's with him, actually helping to write the letter. And likely, it's the same Sosthenes we're going to read about in just a moment. And when Paul concludes the letter, he mentions that Aquila and Priscilla are with him, and they send their greetings as well. In Paul's letters, he's always asking for someone to come join him, or he's talking about with him, he's sending greetings from one set of people to other sets of people. In our passage, we we see this here in Corinth. When he gets to Corinth, we read that he hears about this Jew named Aquila. He and his wife, Priscilla, had the same profession as Paul. And they must have either already been Christians or at least close to being Christians for Paul to work this closely with them. And we don't ever see their conversion in the Scriptures, but we know that they've trusted in Jesus as Lord. 
They had recently been kicked out of Italy by the Roman emperor Claudius, along with all the other Jews in that region. And Paul here, he teams up with them. They work alongside one another. They live together. They develop a friendship that we will see last far beyond their shared time here in Corinth. And in order for Paul to remain faithful to the work he's been called to, he needed other people. We see that all throughout his journey, including here with these new friends, Paul needed people. So do you. So do I. When he arrives in Corinth, he's out of money. He needs to find a way to provide for his life and his ongoing ministry, so he sets to work in a known trade, and he begins to work alongside Aquila and Priscilla making tents. Now, some commentators believe that their work of tent making likely extended to other areas. It might not have just been tent making. If the tents were made of leather, they probably made other leather products. And if the tents were made of some type of fabric, they probably made other fabric products. And they set to work doing these things. Early on in his time in Corinth, he was probably working at this vocation outside of ministry with the bulk of his time. And then using the extra time he had to preach in the synagogue. So even while working alongside Aquila and Priscilla at their trade of tent making, it says in verse 4 that Paul reasoned synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. See, Paul is not a lazy man. He knows that he needs to rely on others and especially God's provision, but he is far from lazy. And there's a reason I think that I have yet to find a biography about someone who was known to be lazy. That is not to say, right, that we don't sometimes also need to acknowledge our limitations. We also need to rest. But I've observed that intentional rhythms of rest and work actually help facilitate both. So here's what we see about Paul in the opening verses of this passage. He worked really hard to provide for his life and ministry, and he also depended upon his relationships with others to help him endure in the work. Faithfulness will require us to work hard and trust that God's going to provide people to work hard alongside of. We should seek to find this same dynamic in our lives. Imagine this good friend of mine that I have, he and I were just speaking this last week. He has long believed that God would call him one day into vocational ministry, but God has yet to provide a pathway for him to do that. And he's now in his mid-30s. He's not sure if God will ever give him an opportunity to pursue vocational ministry. But do you know what he has done in the meantime? He has been faithful in the work that God has entrusted to him. And he has trusted God's provision for that work. He works in the area of HR. He continues to grow within the field. He's good at what he does. And so he gets promotions and raises and opportunities to continue growing in leadership. For the past 10 plus years, he has developed in the HR field. He's also been a faithful gospel witness to his co-workers and to his neighbors. He has lived with character and integrity. He has been faithful to shepherd his wife and his kids, and he's invested in his local church. He has helped to lead worship. He has coached other community group leaders. He's invested in the family ministry. He's even served as an elder. He doesn't know if he will ever enter vocational ministry, but that isn't the most important criteria to his faithfulness as a follower of Jesus. I was talking with him on the phone earlier this week, and one of the things that he said to me about his life is he said, whether or not I'm ever in vocational ministry, the thing that matters to me most is that I'm engaged in life and ministry alongside people that I love and respect. I love his perspective. He has remained faithful in the work that God has given him, and God has provided everything that he needs for that work. Whether or not you work in vocational ministry or whether or not you ever will, that isn't the most important criteria for what I'm talking about. 
We can all be faithful in whatever work God has called us to. And we can trust that God will provide everything we need for that work, whether it is financial provision or relational provision. And so, River City Church, God is calling you to be faithful today and to do it alongside of others. And so I want to encourage you right now to look around the room, look at the people who are here with you, gathered alongside of you. And I'm serious, you can look around the room, I'll give you time. Look around, see who's here. God has brought these people together for a reason. These are the people that God has called you to work alongside of in this season of life. Invest in these relationships. Don't be a go-it-alone sort of Christian. You will fail at that. But God provides through the people in our lives. So invest in these people. And the second way that we see Paul remain faithful is in the face of opposition. We're going to see that as Paul's ministry now begins to develop, it also increases the opposition. But God promises to be with him and to protect him. And so in verse 5, what we see is that when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. We learn here that Silas and Timothy, they weren't with Paul when he first arrived at Corinth. It adds to the fact that Paul needed to find people like Aquila and Priscilla to work alongside of because Paul was mostly alone. Silas and Timothy, they were in Macedonia, and when they arrived, they bring money along with them which freed Paul to be fully occupied in the work of preaching and teaching. Paul actually references this specific financial gift that was brought to him from Macedonia in some other places. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 9, Paul's writing to this church here in Corinth later on, and he says, When I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia, that's Silas and Timothy, supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. And in chapter 4 of his letter to the Philippians, which Philippi is a city in Macedonia, Paul thanks them for their financial gifts to support his ministry. These financial gifts allow Paul to spend more time in the proclamation of God's word and less time at tent making. That is what it means when it says that Paul was occupied with the word. Now again, we see God's provision for the work here, this time through the financial gifts of others. And along with the increase in work from Paul, we also see an increase in opposition. We see that in verse 6. And when they opposed and reviled him, they being the Jews at the synagogue, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles." Once again here, we see this pattern of ministry in Paul that we've noted at each new city he goes to. In each new city, he goes to the synagogue first. He preaches the gospel to the Jews that lived there. And today, we so often see the Christian faith in contrast to the Jewish faith. But for Paul, he saw his Christian faith as a continuation of the work that God had begun among the Jews, as a fulfillment of that work. God wanted these Jews to join the kingdom, and Paul felt a responsibility to tell them that God's promised Messiah had come and his name is Jesus. But when they present such a significant opposition to the work, Paul, he grows frustrated with them. He makes it clear to them that he's moving on. He's innocent of them. They are responsible for their own refusal to worship God or to not worship God in the way that God had designed. As God said in Isaiah 49, 
He had always planned for Israel to be a light to the nations, and through this chosen people, God's salvation would reach to the end of the earth. And so the question for each new Jewish community that Paul would come into contact with was whether or not they were going to get with the program. Were they going to follow God's script for the world or their own? They were welcome to join the movement, encouraged to join this movement. And as Paul says in Romans 9, he had great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart for those who had refused. However, God was not going to stop the expansion of his kingdom simply because some of these Jews were unhappy about how he was planning to do it. This statement from Paul is one of the clearest statements in Acts, how God is expanding the boundaries of his kingdom beyond the ethnic and religious boundaries of the Jewish people. And the impression here that I get from Paul and his ministry is that he's happy to preach and teach those who have not yet believed, but it's when they become actively opposed to the message of the gospel that he grows frustrated. And today, as we seek to be faithful in the work that God calls us to, we may wonder what to do about people that we're sharing with who reject the message. And I think we see an example here in Paul. On the one hand, we should feel the sort of burden for our unbelieving friends and neighbors and loved ones that Paul does here. Remember the language he uses, great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. And in a society today that still carries significant Christian influence and overtones, we are going to find people who will consider themselves to be Christians, even when they do not truly worship Jesus as Lord. People like this will even be in Bible-believing and gospel-preaching churches. They are our co-workers, our family, our neighbors, our friends. Our job, like Paul's, is to remain faithful in our work as a gospel witness to make the gospel clear, and to call people to repentance and faith. But on the other hand, if we have genuinely proclaimed the gospel message, and if they still reject it, even becoming antagonistic toward the gospel, then we can also feel the freedom of conscience to know that our hands are free from their just condemnation by God. Our job is to be faithful in our witness Now, now don't take that as a cheap excuse to be lazy in gospel witness, right? The reason that Paul can say that he's innocent of their blood is because he was faithful in the work. He worked hard to proclaim the message of the gospel. So, be free of a guilty conscience, but don't give up. This is evident in the fact that Paul, when he left this ministry in the synagogue, he didn't move his ministry across town. He just moves it right next door. We'll read about that in verse 7. It says, and he left there and went to a house, went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. I love this verse. I love what it says about Paul and his ministry. He leaves the synagogue and is focused primarily on on a Jewish ministry, and he relocates his ministry to the house right next door to the synagogue. He's just, he's so bold in the way that he's proclaiming the gospel. He sets up shop right next door to the Jews that were opposing and reviling. With courage and conviction, he establishes this new location for ministry. Titius Justice must have become a Christian along the way throughout Paul's synagogue ministry. So he opens his door for the ongoing ministry of the word. And we see some incredible faithfulness or fruitfulness from his ministry now. It says in verse 8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. 
And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. God provides for the work of this new church that has begun to be established. And you know that God can bring anyone to faith in Jesus when you see people like Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believing in Jesus as Lord. The social and relational and financial pressure would have been significant for Crispus to reject the message and join with the rest of the Jews in opposing Paul. But through the work of God's Spirit, he is converted along with his entire household. And in addition to Titius Justus and Crispus, many other Corinthians also believe. And as a picture of their death and resurrection in Christ, they get baptized. Now, let me give you this this quick plug. If you have trusted in Jesus as Lord and not yet been baptized as a believer, like these early Christians responded, then we want to help you do that. In fact, we're starting a baptism class in about a month. Let me know if you're interested in joining you. We'd like to help you take that step of obedience, just like we see here in the early church. And then God gives Paul some reassurance about his provision for this ongoing work. Paul has been faithful in the work, and now God's going to remind him that he can trust in God's provision for the work. In verse 9, the Lord comes to Paul one night in a vision, and he says, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. In many of the previous cities that Paul had been to, he was not able to stay this long. As he increased in ministry, this opposition party would form and Paul would be driven from the city. But in this city of Corinth, God is saying that he has many of his people here. God is going to protect him. And so Paul can feel the freedom to continue proclaiming the gospel. Now, there are many reasons that Paul might have felt weak and afraid as he entered Corinth. And in fact, in his letter to them, he even says that when he to them, he came in weakness and in fear and much trembling. He writes that in 1 Corinthians 2.3. In addition to coming to Corinth low on funds and low on friendships, Paul also came with the repeated experience of needing to flee each new city when the gospel started to take root in that city. God provided for Paul in each city as God thought best. It's a good reminder that this is not ultimately about Paul. Now, Paul might be the primary human actor in the second half of the book of Acts, but he is not the main actor within the book. The mission isn't about Paul. The main actor, the main character in the book of Acts is God himself working through his spirit, and the mission is about the ever-expanding kingdom of God. And so if there's still work to be done in a city like here in Corinth, then God will provide a way for Paul to stay. And if God decides that Paul's work is done in that city, then he would allow him to be driven out. So in Corinth, God wants Paul to continue the work. He gives him a vision. He reassures him of his presence and protection. And then we read that Paul stayed for a year and six months. And this leads to the third way that Paul is faithful. He is faithful in long-term discipleship. Paul stayed for a year and six months and taught the word of God among them. And we actually get two statements that point to, God's, or to Paul's long-term ministry here in Corinth. The first is in verse 11, we just read it, and the second is down in verse 18. We'll read that in a moment. But sandwiched in between them, there's a story about how God makes long-term ministry possible. He proves what he promised in that vision. He provides Paul a way to stay. We read in verse 12. 
But when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews unite, made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. A proconsul would be the chief judicial officer in a province, and the tribunal was the seat from which they would make their declarations and their judicial decisions. And so that's Galileo's role within this province. The Jews had united to bring an accusation against Paul. Here's what they're saying. This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. Their chief accusation to Paul is that he's not worshiping God according to the law. And Galileo quickly realizes that Paul is not breaking Roman law, but this is a matter of Jewish law that's in question. And so we see God's provision here, especially in verse 14. Before Paul can even open his mouth to defend himself, Galileo is already dismissing the case. God promised he would protect Paul, and we see that provision in action right here at the tribunal. And in verse 16, it says that he, being Galileo, drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. The Jews did not have a valid case against Paul, so Galileo kicks them out of the tribunal. It's a show, or in a show of defiance, the Jews then grab Sosthenes and beat him up as a proxy for Paul. It is most likely the case that Sosthenes had also become a Christian, or at least was close to becoming one, and that this is the same Sosthenes that Paul mentions in his greeting in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. We see this significant work of God's Spirit in this church in Corinth. Two synagogue rulers have come to faith in Jesus, along with many others, and God is providing a way for Paul to continue his work within the city to equip this new church and disciple these new believers. And so it says in verse 18, after this, Paul stayed many days longer. So from verse 11 to 18, we see two statements of long-term discipleship on either side of an example of God's provision for the work. While he is there, it says in verse 11 that Paul teaches the word of God among them. And so here's what I'm concluding from Paul's ministry in Corinth. Long-term discipleship requires primarily two things. It requires one, relational investment, and two, the Word of God as our guide. Paul invested in relationships. He loved the people he was with throughout his ministry. His letters to the churches, they are dripping with love and affection. Letters to the Corinthians, to the Thessalonians, to the Philippians. And one example of this sort of long-term investment is Sosthenes. Paul meets him here in Corinth. I would imagine that over the course of Paul's synagogue ministry, and then as he continues to minister next door, he befriends Sosthenes. And through Paul's work of teaching the Word of God, Sosthenes is drawn to the message about Jesus. Somewhere along the way, he came to believe in Jesus as Lord. And then Paul must have continued to invest in him. And Sosthenes must have grown in his own knowledge of the Word and the Scripture and maturity as a Christian because when Paul writes 1 Corinthians from Ephesus during his third missionary journey, Sosthenes is there helping him to write the letter. Over and over we see Paul bring people close to him. And what does he do with these people that he's in with? He teaches them the Word of God. 
And people then are being formed in their faith. They're being formed with the Word of God as their foundation. Now, the word discipleship can feel scary and intimidating sometimes. Now, I commonly make this call to us as a church to live lives of making and multiplying disciples. And I get nods and I get affirmations. We know that we should be about the work of making disciples. But when I press more so often, what I hear is that people are afraid to try to actually do that work. Or they don't understand the ways that they are already doing that work because they feel like they don't know how. And that comes from hearing about so many different discipleship programs and discipleship strategies and discipleship curriculums. People know that they should be about the work of making disciples. And in reality, being part, part of being a disciple of Jesus is investing in the discipleship and growth of others. It is inherent to what it means to be a disciple, is that you will invest in others and disciple others. But let me tell you that what, what faithfulness looks like in this long-term discipleship. It's a lot simpler than we might think. Get here in the example of Paul. It's these same two things. It requires relational investment over the course of time, and the second is the Word of God as the foundation for our growth together. You don't need a special curriculum. You don't need a program. You don't need the best strategy. The strategy is people. The program is life, and the curriculum is God's Word. Living your life alongside others with the mutual goal of becoming more like Jesus is discipleship. So, pick your people, pull them close, open your Bible, and help one another to become more like Jesus. That's long-term discipleship. The fourth way that Paul is faithful here in Corinth is that he is faithful wherever he goes, even on his way home. The rest of our passage tells about Paul's return journey to Antioch, and this is not a short distance. Most of it's traveled by boat. You can see here on the map, the journey from Corinth all the way back to Antioch is a long way home. And all the way home, Paul continues to be faithful in his work. We see that, for example, with his time in Ephesus. We'll read in verse 18. It says, After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. At Shenchery, he had, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow, and they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Paul leaves Corinth. He brings his new companions. When they land in Asia, they spend some time in Ephesus. It seems like a pretty brief stop there, where Paul goes into the synagogue and reasons with the Jews. At this point, it would have been easy for Paul to say to himself, okay, I'm on my way home. I've had a successful journey. I'm going to take some time off of this. But whether he was in the early phase of his missionary journey or he's on his return trip, Paul didn't stop being a follower of Jesus himself. His identity as a disciple didn't end because he's on his return trip. And so he believed that his work of making disciples also did not end. He remained faithful to the work wherever he went, and he trusted that God would provide for the work all along the way. It says in verse 20, when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills, and he set sail from Ephesus. Paul stayed in Corinth for a long time, we see, but then in Ephesus, it's a short time. He does leave behind Priscilla and Aquila to continue the work, but the people wanted him to stay longer. He declines at this moment. However, he says, if God wills, I will return. 
And I'm going to give you a little spoiler. You're going to see this next week. We see Paul going back to Ephesus and spending some significant time there and again having this fruitful ministry among them. And God was already providing for that future ministry by the remaining presence of Priscilla and Aquila. And so then he leaves, and we read in verse 22, when he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. As Paul reaches the eastern shores of the Mediterranean Sea, he first stops and greets the church there in Jerusalem. And after stopping in Jerusalem, he heads back home to Antioch, and he ends what was his second missionary journey. And here's what we see at the end of Paul's second missionary journey. We are called to be faithful in the work as we trust God's provision for the work. God gives us a really clear reminder in this passage that he is the chief actor in the world. Paul is not the main actor or the main character in the book of Acts, and we are not the main character in our own story. God is, and he tells Paul that he will protect him because he has many people in the city of Corinth, and then God provides for a fruitful and faithful season of ministry. See, the primary goal of the chief actor being God is to gather his people into his kingdom, and we, along with Paul, are his workers. Our job is to be faithful in the work and trust that Jesus will sustain us for it, not simply because he loves us, even though that's true, but also he sustains us for the work so that we can do what we were made to do, namely to glorify God as we go about the work of making disciples. And so River City Church... Be faithful in your work this week, whether as a husband, as a mother, as a neighbor, a co-worker, or friend, and trust that God will provide everything that we need for that work. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond. 